sadly the recording wasn't available after Sunday morning, so I'm here in the study now, um, re-recording our Sunday morning's talk, um, our third helping from Pharisees Anonymous, think about money. One of the things we'll be talking and praying about at our church meeting on the 21st of May is our budget for the coming year. We'll be talking together as a church about money. Now, if you're relatively new to Morden Road, that might be a new concept for you. Often people imagine budgets done behind closed doors and in darkened rooms with little consultation. But the process we have as a church is that uh, the elders, along with Andrew Sadler, our treasurer, over the last few months have put together something and then we talk and we pray and we discuss and we reshape and redraft and rework our budget for the coming year and then we meet together as a church family and we vote on it and we approve it and our budget is important not simply because people like me get paid but because it reveals it reveals what it is that we care about now I can tell you till I'm blue in the face what we as a church stand for what's what's important to us and you can read it on the website and you can flick through a welcome pack But to be honest, in one sense, it's only when you see what we spend our money on, will you actually believe it. And that's true for all of us, regardless of our age or stage, regardless of whether we call ourselves Christians or not, or we're just not quite sure where we stand. What you do with your wallet says a lot about you. So think about it for my kids. They... They have a relatively meagre pocket money and they save it up and they sometimes get birthday or Christmas money or tokens and and then they have to decide what they really want, what matters the most to them as they stand before the shelves laden with dreams and hopes. What do they care about? Is it Power Rangers or Hot Wheels? Skylanders or Spider-Man? Or Lego, and if Lego, what variety and type of Lego? It's enormous choices. It's Star Wars Lego or Hobbit Lego or simply Lego City or Ninjago or Marvel Superheroes Lego or Ninja Turtles Lego. What matters the most to them? What do they love? What do you love? Because we say that, yes, we we care about the kingdom of God, and yes, we love you, Lord Jesus, but, but then what would your bank statement say you loved? And actually, come to think of it, would they be substantially different from your neighbour's bank statements? And I preach this to myself, it's been an uncomfortable week again in preparing for this series, but... But we say we care about the kingdom of God and then we fill our houses with the same furniture as next door. And we go on the same holidays and we drive the same cars and we eat the same food. And sure, for many of us, money will go out of our account each month and give to church or to various people overseas. But but after that, is, is there much difference? Ought there be a difference? what do you love? What would your bank statements say? Now we must take care as we think about this. Christians have got this wrong down the ages. We're, we're not called to be ascetics. That is, 
those who abstain from, from worldly pleasures, from the good stuff that God gives us. Now, God loves to give good gifts to his children, and just as I would be disappointed on Christmas morning if the kids threw the presents in the bin and, and gave me a big hug saying, Daddy, it's just you we want. We don't care about this nice stuff you've given us. So I take it God is disappointed too as we reject the good things that he gives us. And so as we consider money this morning, and more generally in life, that this is something we must get straight in our minds. The Christian faith at the same time, is both world-affirming and world-denying. God looked at what he had made and he saw that it was good. And yet the world is broken, so we don't just accept everything without weighing it. We're, we're to be a people who have both feasting and fasting. And so it's right for us to ask the question about how we relate to money. It's right because, as we've said, money is a window into our hearts. But it's right too because Jesus says, do you see in verse 13 of, of Luke chapter 16, Jesus says, no one can serve two masters. Either you will hate the one and love the other, or you will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. He's, he's just told them a parable about what to, what to do with the things that God gives them. But then verse 14, do you see it goes on? The Pharisees who loved money heard all this and were sneering at Jesus. He said to them, you are the ones who justify yourselves in the eyes of others. But God knows your hearts. What people value highly is detestable in God's sight. If you're just visiting us today, just... Just a couple of things to bring you up to speed before we get into this. The uh, first thing to say is that we're having a short series thinking about how the gospel of grace applies to people like us. To, to people who have a tendency, their hearts veer towards moralism, legalism, Phariseeism. That is, people like us who care too much about externals who care about looking good and seeking to impress others by what we do and by being better than them. And people like us who get offended when our pride is popped, when our opinion is not asked, when, when they were thanked and praised and we weren't, our names weren't on the list. But secondly as well, you need to know we don't often talk about money. Often the world thinks Christians are money-grabbing and greedy, and it's either white suits and smoke machines and bling and touch the screen and please donate and you'll be healed. Or else it's, well, look how much land the church owns, how many buildings they have, how much real estate. Greedy Christians, I knew it, I knew that's what they're like. But I want to say at Maudlam Road, that's not us, but that's not you. These last 12 months have actually been very humbling for us as an eldership. We've seen amazing blessing. If, if you're a member, this week you'll have received an email preparing you for the church meeting in a couple of weeks. And no doubt you'll have clicked on the link and you will have seen firsthand people being very generous and kind. More people giving more and more people giving. 
So this is not me with an agenda day of trying to rustle up a bit more cash. Now the only reason we're covering it is that Jesus says Pharisees love money. And I know my heart. And I take it you know yours. So let's go into the passage. And what we'll do is we'll look at what Jesus says. And then we will see some principles that we're to draw from the story that he tells as we think about being faithful with our money in light of the gospel of grace. So first of all, we'll have a glance again at verse 15. This is why Jesus says what he says. This is why he tells this story. Pharisees, he says, well, well, they justify themselves in the eyes of others. That is, they were models, they were examples, they were looked up to. They gave plausible reasons for for what they spent their money on. But it doesn't matter. Because what matters is what's going on inside, and God knows your hearts. Again, like last time, it's about the horizontal, it's seeking to impress others, to dazzle others. But God knows what's happening. And what people value highly is detestable in God's sight. What do people value highly? Well, flip down to verse 19. Jesus says there was a rich man who was dressed in purple and fine linen and lived in luxury every day. So notice firstly with me two very different men and especially as you see that their experience in life, their experience of life is very different. So one man lives in outrageous opulence. He's the guy in the palace at the top of the hill with the turrets and the huge gates and it's been a massive building project frightfully tiring but it was worth it in the end because a custom made glass staircase just finished it all off so nicely and he's dressed pristinely with only the very best brands and fashions he he wouldn't be seen dead at Bista Village outlet malls would be far too common for him you, you must pay full price only the best for him his purple clothes Well, it's likely they would have been made by a dye that would have come from snails, and so it would have been incredibly expensive. The fine linen mentioned, that probably refers to his his undergarments. Even his pants are posh. Limited edition Calvin Klein of the day, and he ate lavish banquets every day. But the other man, well, he has nowhere to live. He lives outside the gates, or better, he he lies outside the gates, probably because he's unable to walk. So the wild dogs would lick him and, and infect him and make him ceremonially unclean. And so it's from here that he begs. No form of income. No comfort. No hope. And food... Food for him is just a dream of what falls from the rich man's table. The leftovers put into the green food waste bin at the end of the day. In fact, later Jewish teaching would actually describe a man like Lazarus as literally having no life. No life because he depends on food from another's table. 
and no life because his body is covered in sores, that they are very different men, that their social status is miles apart. One's got multiple offshore accounts, the other's on every benefit under the sun, or at least he would be if he had a permanent place to live. So they're very different. Second thing to note, though, is that the poor man, interestingly, is named. And his name is Lazarus. Lazarus means he whom God helps. Uh, he's the only person to get a name in any of Jesus' stories. And he's named because Jesus tells us that he's someone whom God helps. Even if no one else helps him, even if no one else knows him, God does. Lazarus is named, but the rich man is not. And that's the first little hint that there's a reversal coming, because we're thinking, Jesus, have you got the name wrong? Surely you're, you're getting muddled there. The rich guy is Lazarus. He's the one whom the Lord has blessed. He's the one, isn't he? The guy outside? No, 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 no. Stop, have a think. It's the opposite way round. But no, the name is correct. Because the story then switches settings. So thirdly, we see their experience in the afterlife. Both men had very different experiences of life, but they were both united by death, as we all are. Lifespans for the rich may well be increasing, but death is still inevitable. And death is not the end. But their experience of the afterlife has reversed their status. Lazarus suffered and was exposed outside the palace with only wild dogs for company. But when, when verse 22, the time came and the beggar died and the angels carried him to Abraham's side... In other translations, Abraham's bosom. A picture that represents Abraham's welcome to the faithful, a place of blessing and honour and comfort. Many see that the language is of a Roman feast, and Lazarus is now lying next to the head of the table, next to Abraham. But, but the rich man has had a very different experience. His wealth no longer counts for anything. The one who feasted can only look on in desperate, gnawing hunger and envy, just as Lazarus had looked at him while they were alive. Verse 23, in, in Hades, where he was in torment, he looked up and he saw Abraham far away with Lazarus by his side. So he called to him, Father Abraham, have pity on me. Send Lazarus to dip the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue because I am in agony in this fire. We need to be careful. We need to be careful because Jesus will speak very honestly and clearly elsewhere about hell. But it seems to me it's symbolic here. This is a story that makes a point. A story rather like a story about St Peter and the pearly gates. We're not to construct our doctrine of hell or the afterlife from here. This is a story with a punch. And the punch is this. It's a question. Yeah. It is, will you obey God? See, the problem in this parable for the rich man is actually not that he was rich. 
Abraham was rich. Abraham was very rich. The problem is that he was not obedient. He was not generous. It's very striking at the at the heart of the law of God. You see something of his character. You see something of his kindness, his generosity, his heart for the outcast. So do you remember in Deuteronomy, Moses is on the edge of the promised land. He's pleading with the people to be faithful after he's gone. He begs them to choose life, to, to trust God's words. And he says this, Deuteronomy 15. However, there need be no poor among you, for in the land the Lord your God is giving you to possess as your inheritance, he will richly bless you. If only you follow, if only you fully obey the Lord your God and are careful to follow all these commands I'm giving you today, for the Lord your God will bless you as he has promised. If anyone is poor among your fellow Israelites in any of the towns of the land that the Lord your God is giving you, Don't be hard-hearted or tight-fisted towards them. Rather, be open-handed. Freely lend them whatever they need. Give generously to them and do so without a grudging heart. Then, because of this, the Lord your God will bless you in all your work and in everything you put your hand to. There will always be poor people in the land. Therefore, I command you to be open-handed toward your fellow Israelites who are poor and needy. In your land. And so we ask, well, has the rich man, have the Pharisees who loved money, have they have they heard this? Have they obeyed this? The story exposes the very heart of the problem that they don't believe what God has said. They've actually ignored Deuteronomy fifteen. Which is why when the rich man then says, please can someone come back and and warn my five brothers, Abraham says, but they won't listen. Verse 29, they have Moses and the prophets, let them listen to them. No, Father Abraham, he says, but if someone from the dead goes to them, then they'll repent. But Abraham says, they don't listen to Moses and the prophets, they won't be convinced even if someone rises from the dead. Friends, it's not a story of God being a God of equality or some sort of karma. You have good things for a bit and you have bad things and then later on we'll swap it round. No, it's a story that says, are you hard-hearted? Will you listen to what God says to you and more than that, will you obey him? And especially, will you be generous? Will you be generous with what God has given you? The rich man calls Abraham Father Abraham, but it's only a title. It's not a relationship. He's not really a son of Abraham because he's not listened to God's word. That's the punch. And we can say that we want to live for Christ and we can sing the songs. And and yet then how different are we? How different am I from those around What would my bank statement say I loved? What would they show that I cared about? 
Luke says, Pharisees love money. So I take it, our question ought to be, well, what principles about money, about giving, can we draw from this story? Four principles. First one is this, do not love money. It sounds simple, but that was the problem of the Pharisees that Jesus outlines. That was why he told the story that he did. Why did they love money, though? It's an interesting one, isn't it? Because our knee-jerk reaction might almost be to think the opposite. The, the Pharisees, we think, would be those who look down on the rich and their lack of generosity and their worldliness. No doubt for each of us that might be a problem when we judge each other and we think, well, how much have they spent on their car? In fact, one book I read about pharisaical hearts and, and money said, well, that was the application. Don't judge others because of the big car and the big house they have. But but it's striking because Luke actually says it was the opposite. They didn't look down on people with money. They loved people with money. Why? Well, I take it because... Partly, as we've seen in previous weeks, it's about the externals. It's about placing yourself upon the ladder and making the comparisons with others. There was a quote in The Guardian this last week from an oil baron called Haraldson Hunt who said, he said, money is just a way of keeping score. What an impressive purple Fleming robe they were. What a house they have. What a church building. Well, God must really be blessing that congregation. I wish we had a church like that. It's not just an externals game, though. In Matthew 23, there's a famous tirade that Jesus unleashes on the Pharisees. And in verse 25, he says, Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites. You clean the outside of the cup and dish, but inside they are full of greed and self-indulgence. They're not just comparing and looking good outside. Not just that game. Actually, it's well, behind closed doors, when they think no one's watching, they are greedy and self-indulgent. Friends, don't, don't love money. As we as a church consider buildings in our future, it would be very easy for us to get caught up with an unhelpful emphasis on money. And that is dangerous, though. That must not be us. Money is to be a tool. It's not to be the focus. Second principle is that this is not all there is. So we're to be obedient now. One of the failings of the rich man, and to be honest, one that seems very common in our culture and is peddled around us the whole time, is the idea that this is all there is. That the here and now is it, and so make the most of it. Use your money for you. Eat, drink and be merry, for tomorrow we die. And so while you're here, well, indulge yourself. You need that. You deserve that. You, you may not get another chance at that. Seize the day. Grab the opportunity. Live for the now. But if 
as we saw at the start of the year in Revelation 21, there is more to come when Jesus returns. And this is not everything. And in fact, what is to come is more real. Then we don't need to try and cram it all in. We don't need to squeeze every last drop out of now. This is not it. And yet what we do now matters for then. Obedience to God now matters for eternity. Third principle, we are called to be generous. Now I think generosity in Oxford is hard. It's hard because everything is so expensive. When we, my family, lived in Birmingham, it was all just a bit cheaper. Mortgages were cheaper and fees for stuff and council tax and bus fares. And Oxford is pricey. It is expensive. But God still calls us to wise generosity. And we say, OK, well, how much? How much do you want? Give me a figure, give me a proportion. But but, but then it turns out the problem is we just want someone to tell us what to do. We want a box to tick. We almost want external righteousness. One such very practical way we'd love to encourage you to be generous is that soon as a church we'd like to take a collection for for the Bentley Taylors, for Pete and Susie. Most of you will know them. Peter's studying at Cornhill in London for half the week and then the other half very ably serving among us. And at this point, that is entirely voluntary. That they have been incredibly generous to us. That they're self-funded, they fund themselves from employment, from supporters, from trusts, but as we heard earlier, we rejoice with the arrival of baby Molly Grace, so... So Susie won't be able to work for a while and there'll be a shortfall. I said we'd like to give them some money from the central budget. We'll talk about that on the 21st of May. But we'd also like to take a collection for them as a church. As a gift for them. Or perhaps even go and speak to Alex Gould. Um, who's just become a member at church. We were hearing about Oxford School's chaplaincy, but what she didn't tell us was that financially things are very tight for Oxford School's chaplaincy. In fact, she may not have a job for all of next academic year. There are some great ways to be generous. Why are we to be generous? Well, I take it fundamentally because we have a generous God. Fourth principle, we have a generous God. Now behind the law in Deuteronomy, which said look after the poor, is a God who is profoundly generous, who cares about the downtrodden, who loves the outcast, a, a God who gives us more than we deserve, more than we could ask for, more than we can imagine. And the fact that the rich man did not help Lazarus, I take it, is that he did not know this God. He might have had a dusty old Bible on the shelves, but he didn't read it. He hadn't read it. 
he didn't know him whom it was about. That the generous God who created a world that was good, a, a world of colour and taste and texture and richness and variety. A world of, of delicate spring flowers and fresh green leaves and sunshine and, and rain and beautiful blossom and mint chocolate chip ice cream and Cornish pasties and music and football and friendship and smiles and laughter and gifts and talents and jobs and houses and money. They're all from him. They're, they're presents for us from our generous God. He's generous too because he rescued a world that rejected him. A world and a people who were stingy and selfish and self-centred, who, who loved only the gifts but didn't want the giver. And so he gave us that which was most precious to him. And we still manage it. But when you stand beside the cross, it's very hard to be selfish. And when you stand beside the cross, it's hard not to be generous. 2 Corinthians 8 verse 9, Paul says, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you through his poverty might become rich. Now how do you counter a stingy heart? How do we begin to unpick our fingers and our affections from the, the things of the now? How do we avoid falling into the trap that the rich man did? I take it that's the, the million dollar question. Well, one writer has said this. He said the solution to stinginess is a reorientation to the generosity of Christ in the gospel. Where he poured out his wealth for you. Because of the gospel, he says, you don't have to worry about money. The cross proves God's care for you and gives you security. Because of the gospel, you don't have to envy anyone else's money. Jesus' love and salvation confer on you a remarkable status, one that money cannot give you. What makes you a generous person is, is not just effort, Rather, it is deepening your understanding of the salvation of Christ and living out of the changes that understanding makes in your heart, the, the seat of your mind and will and emotions. Faith in the gospel restructures our motivations, our self-understanding, our identity, our view of the world. It, it changes our heart. Behavioural compliance to rules without heart change will be superficial and fleeting. And so you see, when we see that gospel and feel 
that gospel such that our hearts melt God's extravagant kindness, his, his outrageous generosity, then we will bit by bit by bit begin to truly be generous ourselves. Not a begrudging, grumbling giving, but, but open-handed and joyful. When we know the generous God, so we will become like him. Let's pray.